And here's something that we've done a lot, but we haven't done in a few weeks. Would you stand in honor of God's word? And I'm going to read from you in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with the very first verse. This is Paul writing to a very dysfunctional church. It is probably the worst behaved, uh, most immoral, unethical church in the wildest city of his time. And yet, Paul went there, planted a church, and many believers came to know him, and thousands are becoming a part of this church, but they really don't know how to act. Uh, And so he has written to them, and curiously, he saves something very, very important for near the end of the book. There's only one chapter left, and uh, that's chapter 16. And here in 15, he begins to bring up a subject that he's waited till the very end. Verse 1, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved. That doesn't mean that salvation is a process and that if you don't do good works, you don't have it. He meant by you are being saved. More and more of you are being saved by this gospel. Everybody that comes in is being saved that way and only that way. And if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Now, again, that looks like sort of a, a deal where you could lose it. But he's saying if it's real, you'll hold fast unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance, and that's the name of this message, first things first, as of first importance. It's that little phrase that caught me this week, and, and I found so unusual that he would wait till the very end of the book to talk about something that is of primary first importance. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one ultimately or untimely born, he appeared also to me. You can be seated. The book of 1st and 2nd Corinthians are letters, really. They're called epistles and they're letters. And, and what you need to know is that they are response letters that the Apostle Paul wrote through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what happened was this dysfunctional church um, had written Paul letters to begin with asking questions about how they could get on track. Uh, you see, apparently they were tired of being the party church throughout the city, uh, the spring break location throughout the city, the Vegas of their time, uh, and far from, unlike Vegas, far from what goes on in Vegas stays in Vegas. What went on in Corinth never stayed in Corinth. In fact, the bad news and the immorality and the lack of ethics and everything that happened in Corinth would travel all the way around the known world and people would know about it before any good news or anything moral got outside the city gates. It's just the way that it was. And I think they were tired of that. And they were genuine believers and they really wanted to be like Christ. And so they wrote letters to Paul. And Paul responded. They wrote one letter to Paul with a whole bunch of questions. And, and, and you might be saying, how do you know this? Pastor Rob, have you read these letters from the people of Corinth? No, I have not. But when you read First and Second Corinthians, you can tell that Paul's answering questions. They read like a bunch of answers. In fact, sometimes they'll say, and when you inquired about this, here's what I have to say about that. So They wrote a letter, he wrote 1 Corinthians. They wrote another letter, he wrote 2 Corinthians. Some believe that they wrote a third letter and that we have, there there would have been a third Corinthians, but the Lord chose for us not to have that. So the word is out. Corinth was sin city, but they want to get it right and they're convicted to get it right. 
And so they wrote letters to the Apostle Paul asking all kinds of questions about how to turn things around, and that's what First and Second Corinthians are. They are Paul's responses to those sort of Dear Abby letters. Now, the, the peculiar thing that I already brought up to you is what it says in verse 3, that you would have all these things and all these questions answered and all this dysfunction leading up to this chapter. And then verse 3 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. There's only one chapter left. Paul's dealt with marriage issues. He's dealt with family issues. He's addressed the anemic prayer lives that they had. He's talked about the dysfunction of communion and how the Corinthians, you know, somehow brought what we're going to do today, the Lord's table and communion, into a party. And they would have the rich who could afford all the food and the, and the good wine and everything in one place. And if there's any scraps left over, the poor would have that. It completely lost all its meaning. And he addresses that before he gets to this. Uh, he scolds them for being prejudiced and lacking unity. He's talked about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I made up that last part to see if you're listening, but he probably would have talked about it if he had time or if rock and roll had been invented. However, what he hasn't talked about yet apparently is the most important thing, the most important thing. He's waited until the end for that. And I don't think that that's that unusual. This week when I was looking at it, I thought that's weird. Why would you write this whole letter and just get everything out there and go, oh, by the way, I forgot the most important thing. I don't think it's a by the way deal. I think it's more like this. When Jesus ascended into heaven and he stood before those 500 witnesses that we just read about in scripture, and they were not going to see him physically in this world anymore, but it was going to be the ushering in of the Holy Spirit. He left us with what? What did he leave us with? One of you whispered it, and you're not even feeling confident about it. He did, and a job, and a mission with the two letters C-O in front of it, which means, what happens if you put C-O in front of mission? Commission. commission. There you go. I had to help you, but you got it. The Great Commission. He left us with the Great Commission. So sometimes when you're leaving and you know you're not going to see a group again, you actually do leave them with the most important thing. And so that's what Paul's doing. He's wrapping up this letter. He didn't know they were going to write back. He didn't know he was going to have anything left. So the, he wanted the last thing in their mind to be the most important thing. So what is it? What's of first importance to these people? Well, let's take a closer look because Paul describes it. He described it in the next verses. And if we take them apart and I pull out what is in there, I find this. Christ's death on the cross is there. Well, I mean, but Pastor Rob, everybody knows that's important. Well, they should. Then what that's for is there, for our sins. Then the fact that he was truly buried, which means he truly died on the cross and he was truly buried for three days. And then he rose again. And then curiously, all these witnesses that he appeared to individuals and then small groups and then large groups. So Christ's death on the cross, that his death was for our sins, that he was truly buried because he truly died. That on the third day he rose again and that he appeared to many, many people and it was verified. Well, that's a mouthful. In fact, that's a really long mission statement. Hey, what's the mission of your church? We exist to verify Christ's death on the cross and explain that it was for our sins and that he was truly buried because he truly died, rose again on the third day and appeared to many first individuals then small groups and large groups too. Who's going to repeat that mission? Who's going to repeat that vision? It's too much. But as it turns out, there are two words and the first one doesn't really count because it's kind of an article word. There's one word that describes that entire mission, that entire first things first of first importance thing. What do you think it is? 
I'm giving you another chance because you were so bad on the commission thing. So what's another one word to describe everything I just said there? That's right. It's the gospel. So what Paul has waited to the very end here, and basically what he is saying to the dysfunctional church of Corinth is, we addressed a lot of issues. You asked me a lot of questions. You've asked why you're disunified. You asked why you're fighting. You asked why you don't have the, the total love of Christ. You asked why you're not reflecting him so much. And I addressed every one of those. However, if you would just make the gospel of utmost importance, those things would take care of themselves. Those things would take care of themselves. Amen. It's sort of like the great commission and the great commandment. Do you know what the great commandment is? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. That's the great commandment. It goes with the great commission. The great commission is what we're supposed to do. The great commandment is how we're supposed to do it in love. Loving God first and loving others at least as much as we love ourselves. And so if that's the how, then what are the chances that we'll struggle with any of those issues, let alone all those issues that the church in Corinth had if we're really loving the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, strength? I mean, are you really, and your neighbor as yourself, or more than yourself? If you love your neighbor as much or more than yourself, what are the chances are you're going to fight with them every chance you get? Probably zero, right? And if you love God that much, what are the chances that you're going to bicker over little things that don't really matter? Or that they're even going to rise up as major issues, that you're going to make major issue out of minor issues? Probably zero. So what he's trying to say things what he's trying to say here is that if you make first things first, if you really knew what was of first importance and it became of first importance to you, I wouldn't even have to have written the first 15 chapters or 14 chapters of this book. You don't need it. But because you were so messed up and so dysfunctional, so off track, we dissected and addressed every little issue and tried to get you to the point where you could even hear what was of first importance in, in chapter 15. So where are you today? Are you ready to hear that? Because this could have been a one-chapter book. <clears throat> Paul is saying that nothing is more important than the gospel. Where do we get the word gospel? Anybody know? Because <coughs> I need a sip of water while you mull it over. Where do you think we got it? Pastor Rob, I don't know if you've noticed, but we haven't done good on two of the three quizzes. Do you really... <laughs> You really want to go there? I do. I'm trying to redeem you, and you're not, you're not helping matters. I just got to tell you, you're not redeeming yourselves real good. Well, <clears throat> I'll get you off the hook a little bit. <clears throat> Excuse me. The word gospel didn't come from the New Testament. It didn't, it's not even really a Christian word. Pastor Rob, you can't say that. I just did. It's not a Christian word. It's a Roman word. It's a, it's a, it came from when the, let me, let, me, let me kind of back up. Who was Caesar when Jesus was born? There was a governor named Corinius, and he helped take the census for a Caesar named Augustus. So that is, wow, you're proud of that. You answered the pagan Roman question, but the, uh, the Christian one, so, <clears throat> right, Caesar, Augustus. Augustus meaning the August one. Did you know that he also called himself the Savior? 
He wanted the whole Roman Empire, the known world, to think of him as the savior because they conquered so many nations and at least for the Romans, he was the savior. He also demanded worship as a god who came to save the people from their oppressors. In fact, it's amazing the words connected with Caesar at that time, and the August one means the one worthy of worship, that were also connected with another king that was being born that couldn't have been much more different. At the same time, these rise up. And when the Romans would conquer somebody and they would do really good, they would proclaim that they won. You know, we've defeated the enemy and we won. And that proclamation, actually the announcement is called the gospel. We have a gospel, which is an announcement. And if the announcement is good, that's called the gospel. So it's used both ways. So when Paul announces the gospel, he's gospeling the gospel. I know it sounds funny, but he's announcing the good news. He's gospeling the gospel. And that's what the Romans would do. They would announce the good news that Rome, once again, was benevolent. And so really, we borrowed that. And 2,000 years later, everybody remembers the gospel. But they have no idea that it started with Rome because they've forgotten him. They've forgotten the August one, Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man alive in that day. Interesting. He demanded that a census be taken in all the land. It was only so he could get an idea of how many subjects he could squeeze taxes out of. The difference between these two saviors, Jesus and Caesar, could not have been more apparent, more obvious. Augustus' rule was defined by the sword, the shield, the banner, his legions. The kingdom of Jesus is marked by a cross, a manger, a tomb. Two different empires established in that day. One was built on power, the other on love, really. One built on control, the other on freedom. One built on oppression and bondage, and the other one on liberating people from the things that oppress us and keep us in chains and, and bondage. Caesar Augustus encompasses the very best the known world in all its ambition could put forward. And this is what we want. This is a king. This is power. This is the best we have. A ruler who sat at the, the apex of the known world and created a system of worship and domination. So, so think about that. Put that in your head or your pipe. Smoke it. The other was destined to humble himself on a cross, sacrifice himself out of love. So Jesus actually represents not a safe, controlled, comfortable thing, but actually a very dangerous alternative to the power of this world. It's a different power that one day will show itself much more powerful. It's a different glory. It's a different peace, and it's a different salvation. Oh, and one more thing that's kind of important as we get ready to remember things that are of first importance. 2,000 years later, one has been relegated to dusty, shelved history books and all but totally forgotten. The other is memorialized and celebrated with sacraments every day all over the world and is never far from anyone's mind. Caesar, the August one, has drifted out of the minds of everyone, probably wouldn't even make the top 50 list of most influential people who ever lived. Probably wouldn't even make that. The other is the single most talked about, followed, popular, studied person in all of history. One is of no importance whatsoever. 
and the other is of first importance. I'm just fascinated by that. That one could never leave the small little geographical area around Jerusalem and Galilee. And the other could march armies into the known world. And one expanded his reach and it just keeps expanding. And the other is forgotten unless you happen to study it. And in the classrooms today in America, you probably won't. So we skip so many things. So maybe you won't even look into it. So it's with that backdrop that we come before the Lord's table today. To remember that which is of first importance. That Jesus' body was broken. And that his blood was shed to pay the price, as Paul said, on a cross where he truly died for our sins and was truly buried and a miracle took place and his father raised him up again and he now lives and many have witnessed it and all who know him and put their trust in him will witness it and be a part of his family. And we celebrate that and we remember that. And we remember it without even having these sacraments. But we also remember it with these sacraments. So one of my favorite passages in which communion is explained is, uh, once again, before 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He even went over that with them. Verse 17, in the following instructions, I do commend you because when you come together, I do not commend you rather, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. So here he is telling them, even your communion is messed up. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there's divisions among you and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So there's this prejudice, this disunity, this dysfunction. What shall I say? Shall I commend this in you? I will not. And then he says this, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he did this simple thing. He took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is a new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you remember it, as, as often as you do it in remembrance of me. And again, of first importance, what are we remembering when we take these little pieces of bread and drink this little tiny bit of the cup, ceremonially, I know, but I hope you don't just go through the motions. What are we remembering? That which is of first importance. That he died. And he had to. That was his mission the whole time. You know, we celebrate Christmas and it's so big. The miracle, the God-man born of a virgin, but that just got things started. He didn't come for that miraculous birth. He came for the miraculous death. So if you knew that you were guilty, and you are, and so am I for your sins, and you had to pay the price, did you know you couldn't? Couldn't pay it anyway. Neither can I. We're sinners. So we could never pay the price. Only he can, and he did. And this is what we celebrate. That which is of first importance, the gospel. And we remember it periodically. I love how we've always done this as a church. At first, every single week, and then every other week, 
come to the Lord's table. I feel good about that. I think that's right. I've been to churches before that do it maybe once a year. Which tells me that they're allowing themselves to forget. I also have been at churches where it's so ceremonial and they go through the motions and you just kind of watch people and you go, are they even thinking about this? It's just here, step one, step two, step three, and you look at them and they're sort of glazed over. For my entire ministry, I've always had this very individualistic because I want your moment before God to be private and for you to wrestle through what you need to wrestle through and get right with the Lord and remember what he did for you. So here's how we do this at Impact. When you're ready, come get the bread and the cup. You can return to your seat or anywhere in here in this room and begin to seek the Lord. Pray. Ask if there's anything that the Holy Spirit needs to bring to mind for you to get right. Repent. Get it right. Thank Him that He gave Himself, that He endured, that when His body was broken and His blood was shed out, He did not call for 10,000 angels to come down and wipe people out. He did not look upon the people that were spitting at him and mocking at him and go, that's it. If I'm hanging on a cross and they still don't get it, then it ends here. Thank him that he didn't say that. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were in the middle of mocking him, in the middle of sinning, in the middle of spitting, in the middle of making fun, in the middle of gambling for his robes and laughing it up, he said to his father, look at them. I love them. But they have no idea what they're doing. Gambling for the robe of the God of the universe who's dying for them. How could you be more clueless than that? One day they'll get it. Those who are my sons and daughters. And they'll remember me. And it'll be a precious time. So let's take this time as a church, as a body. And remember our good God. His mercy and His grace for you and for me.